American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell me about the time. Had it all in my head tonight. Had the time of my life. When the words all come down, like blues on Tuesdays come down. Welcome to another episode of American Timelines by History for Jerks. I'm Joe. And I am joined this week by a returning guest from the Grand Project. Please welcome Ms. Kitty Janvrin. Hi, Kitty. Hello, hello. I'm glad to be back. Thanks for being here. Uh, <laughs> it's so funny. I'm just staring at I'm staring at your name. I know you're there. Um, but uh, yes, thank you for being here. Uh, how are things going? How is your pandemic going? You know, it's like, do I even have an update three years in? Um, it's oh fine. God. I'm still drinking a lot of delicious things uh, oh, from my kitchen. Um, and oh, the weather okay. is finally nicer. So I feel like, yeah. you know, things are getting more optimistic. Yes, it's nice out. I, I walked for two miles today. I, I'm not wearing masks anymore. Uh, so hopefully that's okay. But uh, yeah, so well, thanks for being here. And I understand you're uh, you're going to put out a new episode of the grand project pretty soon, right? Yes. We've been on a very long hiatus, but um, finally getting back into it. So hopefully we'll have some very interesting stories from some older people. You know, I was thinking if you ever run, <laughs> this might be dumb, but if you ever find yourself running low on old people to interview, just come to a, a show at, at Blumenthal and talk to Stop. some of the ushers. <laughs> like old Honestly, <laughs> they would probably have some good stories. I've seen some of those audience members, so yeah. that's not a bad idea. Yeah, some of the people they've had to deal with. So, yeah, I love those. I love talking to the ushers, that, uh, the older ones. But, yeah, so anyway, thanks for being here. We're going to jump right in the timeline. Um, if you, if those of you who don't know, the Grand Project we did American timelines did a um, crossover episode with the grand project where we interviewed the first little league, first female little league baseball player ever um, uh, tubby Johnson Johnston. Uh, and it was a great episode. We had a good episode. They had a good episode. It was really cool. So check out the grand project, catch up on all the episodes that are out there and get ready to listen to a new one. I understand you're going to interview a 99 year old. That's cool. Yes. Hooray. Huzzah. Yeah. But now we're going to jump into 1954. Uh, Kitty knows where we're at. We left off the end of September. I'm going to try to get through October and November today. Uh, so here we go. We're going to jump right in. I'm going to start with October 2nd, 1954. Kitty. Uh, are you a big fan of uh, Elvis Presley? Sure. Okay. Who isn't? <laughs> who, who isn't, right? <laughs> Well, a 19-year-old Elvis Presley on October 2nd made his debut on the illustrious Grand Ole Opry stage at Nashville's Ryman Auditorium. However, the outcome wasn't what he anticipated. He showed off his new high-energy rockabilly song, Blue Moon of Kentucky, but the crowd was not impressed. He was actually kicked out of the venue by management because they didn't like how he was playing country music. Grand Ole Opry legend Jim Denny told him not to quit his day job, he should go back to driving trucks. Uh, according to tasteofcountry.com, 
Presley swore never to return, and he never did. Two weeks later, he appeared on the Opry's biggest competitor, the Louisiana Hayride, and signed on for 52 Saturday night appearances on the radio show, which launched his legendary career. Oh, How about wow. that? I never I, knew that. I never heard either. of Louisiana Hayride. Yeah, I've never heard of Louisiana Hayride. I didn't know he was on Grand Ole Opry. I picture Grand Ole Opry as being really old people like <laughs> that's probably bad of me i'm not a country guy i actually forget that elvis was i guess considered country at the beginning um but yeah that's that's an interesting thing just to hear that somebody like him got you know booed and nobody liked it reminds me of that back to the future scene when <laughs> uh uh marty mcfly is playing the the yeah. uh, the guitar and they're just like look at the rock and roll guitar and they're all just looking at him like what the hell is that <laughs> and he's like oh you'll kill your kids will love it um so that I don't know. and then so that same day october 2nd was a saturday uh in the world series the new york giants was a baseball team that's no longer there they're now in san francisco but they swept the cleveland indians in the 51st world series to win their first championship since 1933 they defeated the heavily favored Indians who had won an AL record 111 games that year. And in the series, game one was the famous, you may have heard of the catch when Willie Mays like catches the ball over his shoulder. Um, I don't know why I'm like demonstrating it. Nobody can <laughs> see that. Uh, but that was amazing. That was in this World Series. Do you, do you care about the World Series, Kitty? I do. You do? Um, like you're a baseball fan? I mean, I love going to baseball games <laughs> do you pay attention to the game or you, or do yeah. you just drink beers oh <laughs> no i do pay attention okay. um now i can't tell you anything about teams or stats or any of that but okay what what's the most recent baseball game you went to actually it's probably i want to say the columbia fireflies oh that yeah. might not be right south carolina been, yeah south carolina so i may have been to one in charlotte more recently than that but oh, gotcha okay cool did you ever go to any game any college baseball games when you were in college oh of course you did yeah i, never... I went to all, all the sporting events when i was in college free you did? tickets i don't pass up free tickets oh. <laughs> free events right i never yeah. once went to a college baseball game because they just seemed like they didn't have any where i went at bgsu it was just it was just bleachers. There was like no, there wasn't a stadium. You couldn't get concessions. There's no hot dogs. It was just couldn't get beer. Is that couldn't what you get beer? That's what I'm getting to. Yeah, uh, and yeah, if if you can't get beer, yeah, there's no reason. All right, I'm gonna jump to Sunday, October third, and this is kind of a full circle moment for American timelines because uh, we talked about the death of this guy on the very first episode uh, because we started in 1990. And this guy died in 1990. And so now I'm talking about his birthday. I have a birthday to talk about. So we're going to hit the birthday. Amy, Amy hates birthdays. Amy hates birthdays. Guitarist, an icon, one of the most influential musicians in the history of blues music, and one of the greatest guitarists of all time, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Are you familiar? I'm not. <laughs> okay. I was kind of thinking when I was putting this together, I was like, oh, you're a little bit younger. You probably don't know. So he died in 1990, but Stevie, Stevie Ray Vaughan is like a blues guitarist. And 
and I would listen back to the first episode today just say, what did I say about him? And this is the thing I always remember about Stevie Ray Vaughan is when I was like in high school and college and stuff, uh, he was a guy that it was cool to know who that was. Like all the cool music people that knew about music knew who still were. Oh yeah. Stevie Ray Vaughan's great. I know I have all his albums and I would just pretend I knew who he was and I really didn't. But of course now that I've listened to him, we've got YouTube everywhere. It's, it's really good. It's really good blues guitar. Like he's, he's really good. Um, so he, he was born and raised in Dallas, Texas. He began playing guitar at age seven and he was initially inspired by his elder brother, Jimmy Vaughn. He was a shy and insecure boy. He was deeply affected by his childhood experiences. His father struggled with alcohol abuse and often terrorized his family and friends with his bad temper. In later years, Vaughn recalled that he had been a victim of his father's violence. In 1972, he dropped out of high school and moved to Austin, where he began to gain a following after playing gigs on the local club circuit. He then joined forces with Tommy Shannon on bass and Chris Layton on drums as Double Trouble in 1978. And it soon became one of the most popular acts in Texas. I listened to some Double Trouble today. That's good, too. So if you like blues guitar, just do yourself a favor, Kitty, and type in Stevie Ray Vaughan. And he always wore these big hats. You probably may have seen him. if You, you might recognize him. Um, and you probably know when you hear the music, you'll be like, oh, I've heard this. Um, but he's good. He even performed at the Montreux Jazz Festival in 1982, where David Bowie saw him play and contact, contacted him for a studio gig, resulting in Stevie Ray Vaughan playing his blues guitar on the album Let's Dance with David Bowie, 1983. Well, see, then I have heard him. Yeah, you've heard Let's Dance, so maybe you'll recognize it. Yeah. So you're a big David Bowie fan then? Oh, I mean, I love Bowie. I wouldn't you, say yeah, I'm the biggest fan um, because I'm sure somebody would call me out for that. <laughs> <laughs> How often do you go out with that red lightning bolt thing on your face, like made of makeup, like David Bowie? You know, not too often these days, but I do have <laughs> a fabulous pair of metallic leather platform boots that my mom calls my Ziggy boots. Nah. <laughs> nice. Excellent. Well, that's, that's definitely cred, street cred in your favor. Okay. That same day that Steve Ray Vaughn was born Sunday, October 3rd at 10 PM that night, Father Knows Best premiered on television, that old sitcom sponsored by Kent Cigarettes. Your taste buds will tell you why you'll feel better about smoking with the taste of Kent. With Kent, your taste buds grow clear and alive because... Kent with the Micronite filter refines away harsh flavor, refines away hot taste. It makes the taste of a cigarette mild. Mild and kind. Kent is kind tasting to your taste buds, kind tasting to your throat, so there's nothing to disturb your full enjoyment of the goodness of Kent's finest quality tobaccos. So get your taste buds back to normal. Smoke a carton of Kent without switching. Then when your taste buds have become clear and alive, try your old brand and see for yourself how much you prefer the mild, kind taste of Kent. Remember, your taste buds will tell you why. You'll feel better about smoking with a taste of Kent with the Micronite filter. Starring Robert Young, Jane Wyatt, Eleanor Donahue, Billy Gray, and Lauren Chaplin, the series began on radio in 1949. It was aired as a television show for six seasons and 203 episodes. Created by Ed James. Father Knows Best follows the lives of the Andersons, a middle-class family living in the Midwestern town of Springfield. The state in which Springfield is located is never specified. 
but it's generally accepted to be located in the Midwestern U.S. Kind of like Simpsons. They never say where Springfield is, I don't think. Uh, did you ever watch Fathers Knows Best, Kitty? No, I did not. <laughs> Me neither. Me neither. It's like one of those old timey ones. Um, and now is the time on American Timelines where we're going to turn to a more tragic note. Hurricane Hazel was around in 1954. It moved westward over the Caribbean Sea through October 8th, 1954, before sharply turning northward under the influence of an upper-level low that was situated over the western Caribbean Sea. By October 9th, Hazel had intensified into a powerful Category 4 storm with max winds of 135 miles an hour. Between October 9th and 12th, Hurricane Hazel moved northward and then north-northeastward crossing western Haiti on October 11th, leaving a death toll estimated between 400 and 1,000 people. Mm -hmm. Um, Have you heard of Hurricane Hazel? I haven't. Just being that you're from this area originally, that's a little uh, spoiler alert. Hazel gradually turned back northward, passing over the southeastern Bahamas, then turned more northwestward. I don't know if you're good with geography. I'm terrible at it. So I don't the know. The hand motions are really helping. <laughs> are those helping? Like yes. it's over here somewhere. <laughs> uh, max winds had increased 150 miles an hour with the center now moving at a rapid 30 miles per hour. Landfall occurred on the North Carolina, South Carolina border on the morning of October 15th, 1954, as the system was starting to transition into an extra tropical storm. The coastal area near the landfall was battered by winds estimated to have been as high as 150 miles an hour winds of 98 miles per hour were measured in wilmington while winds were estimated 125 miles per hour at riceville beach and 140 miles per hour at oak island you ever been to any of those places yes i have i think probably all those right all of them yeah that's what i figured somebody who grew up in south carolina you probably know all these places hazel made lane landfall as a category four hurricane near calabash north carolina you've been there I have not been there. I don't okay. think. Maybe Close, through there. <laughs> that's right at the North Carolina, South Carolina border, I guess, which I live right on the border, but farther west. It's, it was halfway between Myrtle Beach and Wilmington. The hurricane brought a storm surge of over 18 feet to a large area of the North Carolina coastline, producing severe coastal damage. Intensifying the damage was the fact that the hurricane coincided with the highest lunar tide of the year. Do you know what that means? I'm that, assuming that the tide was the highest it was going to be like a, based on the pull of the moon. The highest lunar tide. Like as somebody that's from, like how far did you grow up from the beach? I don't know. I don't know. Like, Columbia. Columbia is right in the middle. Oh, so no. an hour and a half to the beach, an hour and a half to the mountains. Oh, okay. Okay. So you're kind of, it's kind of like Charlotte, like not. Yeah. Not too close. far, but okay. like not super close either. Well, uh, Brunswick County suffered the heaviest damage where most coastal dwellings were either completely destroyed or severely damaged. For example, in Long Beach, North Carolina, only five of the 357 buildings were left standing. Oh, wow. As a result of the high storm surge, the low-lying Sandy Barrier Islands were completely flooded. The official report from the Weather Bureau in Raleigh stated that as a result of Hazel, all traces of civilization on the immediate waterfront between the state line and Cape Fear were practically annihilated. Uh, so it actually nearly wiped out Garden City, South Carolina altogether. Have you ever been to Garden City? I have. Um, I went to Garden City once. Uh, actually, several times. I had a friend that had a place there, so we would rent it from her. 
And so Garden City is pretty cool. So that's why that's the whole reason I included this. Um, it was the deadliest, second costliest, and most intense hurricane of the 1954 season. Uh, after causing 95 fatalities in the U.S., Hazel struck Canada as an extratropical storm, raising the death toll by 81 people, mostly in Toronto. As a result of the high death toll and the damage caused by Hazel, its name was retired from use for North Atlantic hurricanes. I didn't know that that was even a thing. Yeah, I didn't know they retired names. I just thought we were doing a different name every hurricane. Yeah, in order anyway, al- yes. in alphabetical order. Um, I always thought that was cool when I discovered that they do a alphabetical order. October 27th, 1954 was the day that UFOs stopped play. Now, granted, this did not happen in the United States. I know it's American timelines, but I realized I didn't have a true crime and I didn't have a murder. So I had to add this. Is that okay with you, Kitty? That is totally fine. And actually, I know this story. I saw this in my research. Yes. Oh, do you want to tell it? No. (laughs) You're not ready. You're not prepared for it. Well, I don't think my Italian is good enough. Oh, yeah. I don't know how much I'll, I'll be able to do either, but I, I, I'm reading right off an article from BBC.com because I just grabbed this uh, at the last second, realizing we didn't have a UFO or a murder or anything. So uh, October 27, 1954 was a typically crisp autumn day in Tuscany. The mighty Fiorentina club was playing against its local rival. Oh, gosh. And now <laughs> I see what you're saying. Pistoese. And that's exactly how you that's pronounce exactly it. exactly right. 10,000 fans were watching in the concrete bowl of the Stadio Artemi Franchi. But just after halftime, the stadium fell eerily silent. Then a roar went up from the crowd. The spectators were no longer watching the match, but were looking up at the sky, fingers pointing. The players stopped playing. The ball rolled into a standstill. One of the footballers on the pitch was Artico Magnini. He was something of a legend at the club and had played for Italy at the 1954 World Cup. Now, keep in mind, this is 1954, so we don't have fancy technology. I remember everything from A to Z, he says. It was something that looked like an egg that was moving slowly, slowly, slowly. Everyone was looking up, and also there was some glitter coming down from the sky. Silver glitter. That's that's creepy. Uh, We were astonished. So he didn't say that. I said that. Uh, we were astonished. We had never seen anything like it before. We were absolutely shocked. Are you still there, Kitty? I am. Okay. Here. Now my screen is like, there's like where the mouse is is like a circle. It's like a blue circle. Like it's <laughs> always promising. Trying to connect. <laughs> so I, that usually means any second now I'm gonna lose you. Um, play was suspended because spectators saw something in the sky, according to the referee's match report. Among the crowd was Gigi. Boney, a lifelong Fiorentina, Fiorentina fan. I remember clearly seeing this incredible sight, he says. I thought Gigi was a woman, but it's a he. His description, I assumed, his description of multiple objects differs slightly from Magnini's. They were moving very fast and they were just stopped. It all lasted a couple of minutes. I would like to describe them as being like Cuban cigars. They just reminded me of Cuban cigars and the way they looked. Boney had spent many years reliving that day in his mind. I think they were extraterrestrial. That's what I believe. And there's no other explanation I can give myself. 
Another of the players, Romolo Tucci, still sprightly in his 70s, agrees. In those years, everybody was talking about aliens. Everybody was talking UFOs, and we had the experience. We saw them. We saw them directly for real. The incident at the stadium cannot simply be interpreted as mass hysteria because there were numerous UFO sightings in many towns across Tuscany that day and over the days that followed. According to some eyewitness accounts, a ray of white light was seen in the sky coming from Prato, north of Florence. Another man who relishes the chance to speak about that day is Roberto Pignati, the president of Italy's National UFO Center. He was written many he has written many books about UFOs and his home in the center of Florence is stuffed full of alien memorabilia, posters of old Italian B-movies, framed newspaper articles and black and white f- photographs of blurry flying saucers. The players and the public were stunned seeing these objects above the stadium, Pignati says. At the time, newspapers spoke of aliens from Mars. Of course, now we know that's not so. But we may conclude that it was an intelligent phenomenon, a technological phenomenon and a phenomenon that cannot be linked with anything we know on Earth. He's also intrigued by the material that fell from the sky, what Magniti describes as silver glitter. Uh, It is a fact that at the same time the UFOs were seen over Florence, there was a strange sticky substance falling from above. In English, we call this angel hair, says Pignati. The only problem is after a short period of time, it disintegrates. As a 10-year-old boy, he witnessed this phenomenon himself. He said, I remember in broad daylight seeing the roofs of houses in Florence covered in this white substance for one hour, and like snow, it just evaporated. No one knows what the strange substance has to do with UFOs. So a lot of witnesses described it similar to cotton wool or cobwebs. The substance was hard to collect because it disintegrated on contact. But some people were determined to find out what it was. One of them was a journalist at the Florentine newspaper La Nazione, the late Giorgio Bettini. In 2003, he told an Italian. Oh, sorry, I thought that was you. Are you still there? Yes. Okay. Sorry. He told an Italian television program, Voyager, how on that day he received hundreds of phone calls about the sightings. From the offices of Lad Nazione in the center of town, his own view of the sky was blocked by the cathedral. So he went up to the top of the newspaper's building to see what everybody was talking about. The 81 year old recalled seeing shiny balls moving fast toward the dome of the cathedral. He ventured out to investigate and he came across some wood outside the city that was covered in the white fluff. He gathered several samples by rolling them up in a matchstick and took them to the Institute of Chemical Analysis at the University of Florence. When he got there, he found that others had done the same thing. In the lab led by respected scientist Professor, professor Giovanni Canari subjected the material to spectrographic analysis and concluded that it contained the elements of boron, silicon, calcium, and magnesium, and that it was not radioactive. Unfortunately, this did not provide any conclusive answers, and the material was destroyed in the process. Um, So then a lot of people speculated, was this UFOs? They interviewed uh, a guy, James Mageha, who was a, a fighter jet pilot, and he said, now that's all just ridiculous. And he said uh, he thought maybe it was a meteor at first, but then it came very apparent to him that it was actually just caused. The whole thing was just caused by young spiders spinning webs, <laughs> very, very thin webs. The spiders use these webs as sails and they link together and you get a big glob of this stuff in the sky and the spiders ride on this to move between locations. 
They just so fly I on the wind. That. <laughs> I read that theory and I just, it is so funny to me because, you know, when you're like listening to the initial quotes you just read from these people are like, I was picturing massive like metal eggs in the sky. Right, right. <laughs> So maybe they were small cigar. Maybe when he said cigar shaped, he meant the size of a cigar. Yeah, that's true. I didn't know spiders could ride on the, in the sky on spider webs. Well, and that high up, I'm like picturing above a stadium. Yeah. And if it made everybody stop and look, it had to be weird. So they said, yeah, they just fly in the wind and these things have have been recorded at 14,000 feet above the ground. So when the sunlight glistens off this, you get all kinds of visual effects. Some of this stuff falls and breaks to the ground. It all seems magical, but he's fairly confident that's what happened that day. I've never heard anything like that, but uh, I don't know. Uh, well, you know, this is a very fitting story because when we're recording tonight is the first Charlotte FC game. So maybe there will be some UFO activity. Yeah, that soccer game. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I... um. That's crazy. I just think about this. Like there's so many of these, the more I look up stuff and the more we've done this podcast is getting into the fifties and the you know sixties and seventies. There's all kinds of stories of mass groups of people seeing stuff like this. And I, I just, it can't be not real. Like, I don't know. I watch, a, I get, I go down a lot of YouTube rabbit holes and there's so many, things of people that have seen stuff and experienced things and i don't know have you ever seen an alien katie i've never seen a real alien (laughs) any ghosts you know never seen any ghosts no i am a ghost believer you are a ghost believer yes we did a yes you and i did a ghost tour together yeah so um yeah, I there's just there's got to be more to our existence than what like we can't nobody can explain how anything works. I just feel like we're I'm beginning to believe that simulation theory. I don't know <laughs> something like we're just like I don't know what we are, but I, you know I, I somehow I got you know my YouTube algorithm is now showing me I must have looked at something too long. Because now it's showing every night before I go, you know, I listen to YouTube before I go to sleep and it just like times out and I go to sleep and I just, you know, I don't know. I just need people talking. So it's just random. I don't know. So, but lately it's been showing me things where people believe uh, that we are like, you can, there's all these channels that people are saying anything you want or want to, whatever you want to happen, just say it and it'll happen like oh like manifestation manifestation videos or whatever like reality comes from you know and there's been so many things that happen after i i kind of just say oh this is what's going to happen then it happens i'm like wait maybe that is but then part of it might just be the creepiness of ai now and algorithms (laughs) listening to you because i swear to god here's the craziest one i just searched something the other day god let me see if i can remember what it was because this there's no way google google predicted what i was going to type and there's no way they could have known what i was thinking because i was thinking it in my head damn it i wish i could remember i'll think about it don't you know that we're all microchipped at this point we must be microchipped (laughs) i'm telling you i wasn't nobody was home but me and i had this thought and i went to google it and it 
I put in one letter and it already knew what I was thinking. And what I was thinking, it's not something a normal person would think, whatever it was. Now I can't remember what it was. But see, it's probably so used to you. Yeah. And I don't know that you really <laughs> fall under the normal person category that's, most that's, of the time. <laughs> that's definitely true. I definitely don't. Yeah. I mean, and doing a podcast, your your algorithms get really fucked up because like, I'm just looking at my my recent search history and it's the first butterball turkey i searched for <laughs> um nixon broke a gavel harry elefante these are all things for today's episode that i was searching i was trying to see back what i spoiler what I alert spoiler <laughs> alert mr t and tina anyway i don't i don't see it on here to remind me but it, it was not a thing a normal person would search and it knew what i was thinking it's scary we're, we're all microchipped oh whoops you cannot minimize Zoom when you are recording. Okay. How do I get back to my... Okay, there we go. Uh, so, anyway, uh, that was an interesting alien story. And I believe, I believe when mass people like that see something, I don't believe mass hysteria is a thing. If there's a million people seeing something, it's real. Don't you think? I mean, it's hard to say. I feel like in reading a little bit about the 50s it just seems like there's such a fascination with ufos and so yeah. everything suddenly becomes a ufo that's true they did well, say in this article that people and, are all talking about it i mean although um not to ruin anything for future episodes but i did think it was fascinating that eisenhower supposedly had three meetings with extraterrestrials yes yes Yes, that was a thing. He's the president that, well, and Gerald Ford reported, or not Gerald Ford, uh, Jimmy Carter uh, reported one. Like he's, before he was president, like he saw and reported a UFO. So they're real for sure. And <laughs> Kitty's proving it right now uh, by being here and not. And hopefully they're screaming. listening. Yes. And we're welcome. We're friendly aliens. I almost wonder if we're the aliens. You ever think about that? Like maybe we arrived here so long ago and our civilization started. We don't even remember. We're the aliens, Kitty. There you go. You ever see Planet <laughs> of the Apes? All right. Uh, that same day on October, October 27th, a little African-American history. I, I wish I had an African-American history theme song, but maybe I'll throw something in there because I got a couple awesome African-American history moments this month. Benjamin O. Davis became the first African-American general in the U.S. Air Force. On December 9th, 1998, he was advanced to four-star general by President Bill Clinton. During World War II, Davis was commander of the 99th Fighter Squadron and the 332nd Fighter Group, which escorted bombers on air combat missions over Europe. Davis was one of the first African-American pilots to see combat. He followed in his father's footsteps in breaking racial barriers because Benjamin O. Davis Sr., was the first black general ever in the U.S. Army. So how about that family? Wow, yeah. That's, that's a groundbreaking that's family a, right there. Yeah, quite a legacy. Yep. And while we're talking about race, racism and races changing, October 30th, the U.S. Defense Department announced the elimination of all racially segregated regimes. So that's good. And then we're going to jump to November here. Are you still with me, Kitty? You ready to I jump into here. November? Yeah. All right. The, uh, sometime in November, I couldn't find the exact date. I didn't know this. This is new to me, and I, I know you're a movie fan, so maybe this will be news to you. But did you know that the Fast and the Furious movies, have you ever heard of those? Of course. Did you know they are loosely based on a film from 1954? No idea. 
also called the Fast and the Furious. Direct and the, what's even better is this 1954 Fast and the Furious is available on YouTube. You can watch the whole thing. Uh, directed by John Ireland and Edward Sampson, starring John Ireland and Dorothy Malone and Bruce Carlyle. It, the story revolves around a trucker framed for murder who breaks out of jail, takes a young woman hostage, and enters her sports car in a cross-border race, hoping to get to Mexico before the police catch her. Uh, have you seen the, the new Fast and the Furious movies? I have never seen any Fast and the Furious movies. <laughs> I haven't either, and I feel like I thought I was the only one. There's like 14 of them now. So maybe that's our new podcast, Kitty. You and I watch them <laughs> in real time and react to them as two people, the only two people left who haven't seen any of them. Yes, uh, um, you definitely need another podcast. And <laughs> I'm sure that the plots of all 14 differ wildly from one another. <laughs> I, he, I have a lot of friends that watch them just like they're not, they know they're not good, but they watch them to make fun of them. And then it's, that's become a whole genre of its own. Like, I think it's like um, uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show or something. Like they throw things at the screen. Do not, we are not going to put Rocky Horror and Fast and Furious in the same category. <laughs> you know, I might change my mind if I watch them. But well, what if you and I go see them and then we throw stuff at, at the screen? We'll throw toast. I guess yes. they're not in the theater anymore. But anyway, so that's that's we'll something like cars. Yes. Yeah, we'll drill, dress up and yeah, uh, yeah. I just think of Rocky Horror. Everybody's wearing like leather and stuff. All right, November. I got to get to your story because yours is so cool. November second, more African American history. Charles Diggs Jr. is elected Michigan's first Black congressman to the House of Representatives, and then November fourth, the Philadelphia A's. Moved to Kansas City. It's a baseball team that ended up being today's Oakland A's. Um, and since you care about baseball, I thought I'd keep this in. Instead of talking about all the history of this franchise, I was not aware that the Oakland A's were in Kansas City ever. I didn't know they were in Philadelphia either. Did you? No, no idea. No? You're down here now. You're not on my other screen. Okay. Um, but I also stumbled upon something that I didn't even realize, but the Oakland A's sometimes wear uniforms and they have like a little elephant. There's a little elephant emblem for the A's. It's kind of like a mascot, which I totally forgot about until I read this. So I'm going to tell you about the fact that they had a mascot of an elephant and it happened because uh, New York Giants manager, John McGraw told reporters that Philadelphia manufacturer Benjamin Scheib, who owned the controlling interest in the Philadelphia A's at the time, were a new team, had a white elephant on his hands. Uh, team manager Connie Mack defiantly adopted the white elephant as the team mascot and presented McGraw with a stuffed toy elephant at the start of the 1905 World Series. That's 1905, right? McGraw and Mack had known each other for years. McGraw accepted it graciously. But by 1909, the A's were wearing an elephant logo on their sweaters. And in 1918, it turned up on the regular uniform on the Jersey for the first time. And in 1963, the A's moved to Kansas city and then owner Charlie Finley. Oh no. They moved to Kansas city on this date. Sorry that I'm talking about, but a little bit later in 1963, while the A's are in Kansas city, the owner, the new owner, Charlie Finley changed the team mascot from an elephant to a mule, uh, which is the state animal of Missouri 
and it was rumored to have been done by Finley in order to appeal to fans from the region who were predominantly Democrats at the time, since an elephant is a Republican and and that the mule is a, a Democrat. And then uh, once they moved to Oakland in 1988, the athletics uh, put an illustration of an elephant on the left sleeve of their jerseys and brought that whole thing back. So that's the whole origin of the, of the elephant and the elephant actually had a name in, uh, in the eighties and they called him Harry Elefante. Uh, that was the name of the elephant mascot, which I love, but they changed its name in 1997 to stomper, which I think is fucking dumb, but yeah, it's not nearly as much fun to say. Yeah. Harry Elefante is awesome. Um, Harry Elefante. That's great. Uh, okay. I'm going to keep moving quick here. Cause I got to get to your thing. November 17th. This is something I couldn't pass up. Do you know anything about what do you know, Kitty? What is your knowledge about the U S Senate gavel? <laughs> <laughs> um, now I feel like I should have some knowledge of it at all, but I don't, you're not a big U S Senate gavel fan. Should I be? You should, because let me tell you this interesting tidbit. So number one, the Senate uses a gavel, you know, the, the yes. whoever presides over the thing uses a gavel, but you think of a gavel as like a little hammer thing with a handle. This gavel, for some reason, doesn't have a handle. It's just the hammer part, the little hammer part and it's ivory, but sessions of the U S Senate are, pres- are presided over by a Senator who's usually the vice has been the vice president for years mm-hmm. uh, providing over the Senate. He or she is in charging of enforcing the rules of the Senate, maintaining order, and that's done with this gavel. Uh, because the vice presidents of the USA often have uh, presided over the Senate, apparently the president of the Senate used the same gavel from 1789 when John Adams presided until 1954 uh, when something tragically happened to it. Uh, John Adams used the same one. As Richard Nixon, who was the then vice president at this time, and Nixon broke the fucking gavel uh, when presiding over a heated debate on nuclear energy, and uh, he gave this ancient gavel a mighty whack, which led to it breaking, and uh, due to the ceremonial instrument being specially fashioned out of ivory, a ready commercial replacement was not easily found, but they sent out a message like, hey, where can we find a gavel like this, a special ivory gavel? We broke John Adams fucking gavel and fucking Nixon fucking broke John Adams gavel. Sorry. I'm almost done with my, my hop slam, which is a 10% beer and I'm getting a little riled up here. Uh, I know you sound like you're going to break a gavel yourself. Oh, fucking Nixon. <laughs> I got, not only did was he an asshole, like he fucked John Adams gavel up. So just after 2 PM on this date, November 17th, 1954, uh, the vice president of India, Dr. Rod Hakrishnan entered the U.S. Senate and he was introduced to his counterpart, Nixon, noting that India had modeled its democratic institutions on those of the U.S. He presented Richard Nixon with an instrument without which a presiding officer would be ineffectual, a new gavel. He hoped the gavel would inspire senators to debate with freedom from passion and prejudice. The new gavel, also made of ivory, continues to be in use today. While designed as a replica of its predecessor, it features an additional floral pattern. And you can check this out on trivia.serendip.in, which is now there's a dot everything. And you can see a little picture of the two gavels next to each other. The one's got a crack in it. 
the old broken one and then the new one they kind of look the same but again the floral pattern so a bunch of useless shit you didn't know before you now know about gavels yes i mean that's kind of an interesting <laughs> connection with india and the u.s though yeah, i never would have known that it's a nice little cool thing that so you know if you ever see a senate session on c-span you know where they got that gavel and that it's and that i was just amazed that they were using john adams still but nixon and john adams used the same gavel that's crazy yeah that um, is. then november 22nd the humane society forms in washington dc boom humane society exists thanksgiving day november 24th air force one the first u.s presidential airplane was christened in 1954 and uh butterball turkeys came into play at thanksgiving this year because before that uh you had to get your thanksgiving turkey by a local farmer or a butcher but thanks to frank swift he bred these larger turkeys with big breasts that could be frozen and you could deep baste them so they could be i don't know whatever he could mass produce turkeys for the first time but now that brings us to the moment we've all been waiting for (laughs) not to build it up too much kitty (laughs) but november 30th 1954 you got something cool for us right yes so on the evening of november 30th 1954 a man named eugene hodges came home from work to find that his home was essentially ground zero for an extraterrestrial invasion by a 4.5 million year old meteorite oh um so his wife um Anne Hodges had been napping because she didn't feel well in their home in Silacauga, Alabama, um, okay. around 2.46 p.m. when a meteorite fell through the roof of their house. Uh, oh. Now, in a funny turn of events, um, the house actually stood across from a drive-in theater called, wait for it, The Comet. So what? very, yes. Shut up. I, that is what I found in my research, <laughs> um, funny enough. Um, but when the comet, or excuse me, when the meteorite came through the roof, it hit the large radio console, which was next to the couch, and then bounced onto Anne's left thigh as she was asleep. Now, this meteorite weighed about eight and a half pounds, um, and it was also when it broke the atmosphere of the Earth, they estimate it was uh, going about 200 kilometers an hour, which is the equivalent of about 124 miles per hour. Wow. So um, it is quite remarkable that she survived this with only a massive bruise, which the images of her bruise are horrifying, but. <laughs> That's all she had is a bruise? Yes. It went um, through her fucking house and landed on her thigh. She only had I a bruise. Know. Yes. Holy um, shit. I mean, things aren't all rosy after this happens, <laughs> but as you can imagine, um, especially in 1954, this was a very big deal, especially in this small town in Alabama. Oh, that's a big um, bruise. Yes. Sorry, it's that's a, a massive bruise. bruise. <laughs> Holy shit. That's a big bruise. Okay. Oh my God. Um, so, of course, the meteorite that hit Ann Hodges had broken off of a larger meteorite. Um, and then the another fragment of that meteorite now resides in the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. You can still go see it to this day. Really? 
So most meteorites found by humans uh, range between the size of a golf ball and a fist. And the one that hit Anne was about the size of a softball, again, around eight and a half pounds. Um, and according to Michael Reynolds, who is a Florida State College astronomer in an interview he had with National Geographic, you have a better chance of getting hit by a tornado and a bolt of lightning and a hurricane all at the same time than this <laughs> happening to you and you surviving. Oh my God. Um, what a special woman, Ann Hodges. Yes, was, huh? Absolutely. So the house, of course, was surrounded by paparazzi, by neighbors, and by police because when the incident happened, she awoke in a cloud of dust in her house and initially thought the house was collapsing, that the oh. chimney had collapsed or something like that. Um, and then saw this strange rock in the corner and also the pain in her, the left side of her body. Um, and so called the fire department and the police. And so the house was completely surrounded by the time that her husband, Eugene, came home from work. Um, but after the incident, Anne had major problems sleeping. Oh, yeah. Partly because of... <laughs> The incident itself, but also just the hoopla it caused after oh, yeah. the fact. Um, sure. I mean, she was a minor celebrity at the time. A lot of um, hubbub that goes around with that. Yes, yes. Um, and she was eventually hospitalized for not sleeping, um, as well as other ailments that would come on later that we'll touch on in a second. But the meteorite itself was taken into custody by the Air Force. Um, so, of course, there's panic over Cold War and oh, yeah. UFOs, like we've just yep. talked about at this time. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, the Air Force took it in to verify that it was indeed a meteorite and not some sort of bomb or any sort of weapon, um, but it was verified as a meteorite. Wow. And once they took it, the initial promise was that it would be returned to the Hodges after it went through all of its certifications, uh, but the landlord of the house that the Hodges were renting claimed that the meteorite should fall under her purview. Oh. <laughs> um, so she actually sued them for it. What? And the case was eventually settled out of court um, with the Hodges paying their landlord, Bertie Guy, $500 for custody of this meteorite. What? And five hundred dollars in nineteen fifty four is yes. about ten million now or something. I mean, a lot of money. <laughs> lot. Yeah. Um, Eugene Hodges was convinced that it was going to be worth a pretty penny. Yeah. Um, now, unfortunately, Uh-oh. it sat as a five hundred dollar doorstop <laughs> in their house, um, and then eventually made its way to the Alabama Museum of Natural History. Oh, I want to um, go see it. Now, the siblings to the Hodges meteorite, so these other fragments that broke off before it hit the Hodges house and other areas in Alabama, um, were much more profitable. So a fragment found by a neighboring farmer who initially found it when he was when it was blocking the path of his mule-drawn buggy. So we still have mule-drawn buggies yeah. along with UFO Shit. craze in 1954. Um, apparently, he sold his fragment for some amount that allowed him not only to buy a new house, but also a car. What? 
So and why the hell wasn't hers worth more? It hit her fucking thigh. I know. Um, and this farmer apparently hired a lawyer to help him find a buyer. Okay. Whereas I don't know if the Hodges did or not. It doesn't seem like they did. Yeah, maybe um, they weren't equipped with the And you can't skills. just go on Amazon at this time and <laughs> list things. eBay or anything. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then more than 60 years later in 2017, I believe, um christie's the auction house yeah. sold a fragment of the same meteorite for seventy five hundred dollars wow so even into the 2000s like this was much more profitable for people other than the poor hodges oh poor hodges um, and poor ann hodges did not have a good rest of her life after she became a minor celebrity due uh-huh. to being hit by a meteorite um so she was on the cover of Life magazine, the December 1954 issue, uh, to talk about this amazing thing that happened to her. Um, but then after that, she had a lot of ongoing health problems. Um, mm. And a lot of that, the doctors believe, related back to just her being thrust into the limelight for something like this. Um, and yeah. she suffered a lot of panic attacks. Aww. He and Eugene also got divorced in 1964. Um, likely due to the craze around them because of this incident um and then she passed away she died of kidney failure at the age of only 52 oh poor ann hodges yes she had a hard life after the meteorite hit her but she is still to this day the only confirmed person to be hit by a meteorite and survive wow that's a big ass meteorite to hit you in the thigh like shit that bruise is not a joke that's serious yeah so while the meteorite is officially named for Sila Calga, i hope i'm saying that right for the place that it was oh, it the, landed, ho- the owner of the home right yeah or just the the place that it was in alabama oh um it's popularly tough. known as the hodges meteorite so the hodges meteorite yeah and huh. name does live on in that way but um it's a fascinating story and a very strange thing to imagine happening to you or someone you know what a crazy year 1954 is jeez we got this alien spider spiders flying around the world and then that so man that bruise is nasty she got hit at a meteorite in her house i thought it was gonna be like she was outside somewhere i didn't know she was sleeping in bed I mean, it's probably a good thing. She may have died if it had hit her. Oh, yeah. You're right. If you hit her directly, she'd be dead probably. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Never heard that story before. Awesome. Well, thank you for covering that, Kitty. That's kind of a crazy fun story. Um, I see all these pictures when you Google it. You can just Google Ann Hodges. I actually Googled Ann Hodges bruise. But there's a lot of pictures of her and her gross bruise. And then, like, it looks like her husband holding the meteorite, and yeah. she's holding it. Um, it looks heavy as hell. I mean, like, can you imagine something going 100 miles an hour? An eight and a half some pound something going 100 miles an hour hitting you. And that rock could no. be from another planet, like another planet that had a civilization that was <laughs> destroyed in a war. It could be a, it could be a, uh, an exact replica of our civilization it could be a alternate dimension i have no idea but that's wow that's cool thanks kitty janvin
Thank you, Joe Hunsaker. Thanks for doing this uh, research and being on American Timelines again. Uh, and it's good to talk to you again. Um, and I look forward to listening to your next episode of The Grand Project. Um, I always love interviews with 99-year-olds. Uh, so yeah great thanks awesome thanks for being here i hope you're not angry about the technical difficulties we had oh i'm so furious you are furious you're a hothead i'm gonna go break a gavel go break a gavel that's a good tie back well thanks for listening everybody it's time to get out of here chuck berry uh this is the end of this episode this was cool kitty rules and i'm definitely gonna bring you back how do you feel about coming back like like once every couple months anything for you joe a lot of work right it's a lot of work yeah all right anything for me sweet all right anything well i got a lot of more requests for you then all right thanks for listening everybody get out of here thanks kitty thank you anything else you want to say to everybody uh go look for aliens above your local uh <laughs> soccer or football stadium yeah that's where they'll be baby you could have mom Matt Truman Ego Trip is the greatest band of all time. Buy their music. 